You're listening to Ritual, a podcast for curious humans, all about creative practices, mindset, and professional improvement. I'm your host, Daniel Lamb, CEO of Holland Creative. Hi, Laura Jean. Hey, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really glad to to be having this conversation with you today. So before we get into it, I will now read your biography for our listeners. Prepare yourself. Laura Jean Truman is a former chaplain and writer living in Atlanta, Georgia, writing about queer spirituality and digging into the mystical aspects of Christianity after surviving Christian evangelicalism. Welcome to the Ritual Podcast, Laura. It's great to have you here. So before we dive into the heavier stuff about surviving evangelicalism, if if I said that word correctly, let me ask you my number one question. What's your ritual? Well, thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It is very good to be here. I would say my number one ritual is probably flexibility and not being precious about my rituals. Because I'm someone who really craves schedule but that means that if my ritual gets thrown off, if I say every morning I'm going to set the coffee pot to start brewing at 6.30 and I'm going to awaken to the noise of coffee and then I'm going to sit and I'm going to read this book about Jesus for three to four minutes and then I'm going to do yoga practice and I'll have a whole vision for the day. But if if one thing gets a little off, then if I'm not careful, it can throw my whole day. And then my whole day no longer, I'm like, I've lost the day. I didn't get up when the coffee pot went off. I didn't do my yoga as soon as I woke up. And so for me, the kind of spiritual practice of listening to the day and allowing my rituals to shift with my energy and my mood and my needs has been really my number one 2020 ritual has been that kind of shifting and listening. I don't know if that really answers your question. It it actually totally answers the question. And it reminds me of a... A talk I was listening to was actually with this Catholic father guy, and he was talking about spiritual intentionality and practice. And basically, I think the concept was around spiritual posturing. And the idea was, there's there's a tie in here, I'll get there. But he said something to the degree of, don't starve to death while you're reading the menu. I think that for me, I have that sort of obsessive personality too, where I can become overly concerned with the details of a ritual or a routine to the point where blind adherence to that or failure to do so could completely ruin my day and put me in a state of unreasonability on an unconscious level. And then, you know, everything, everything's a lot more difficult than it needs to be because I'm in a place of not accepting and going with what is. So yeah, you totally nailed it with that. I love that way of seeing ritual because we can get so obsessed with the idea of as the ritual is the end in itself, instead of the ritual as a means to bring us to wholeness, as a means to bring us to creativity and stability. And then when the, when the ritual cracks, we get angry at it instead of adapting and saying, well, how else can I find wholeness in this moment, even though the ritual maybe isn't serving me right now? That is very insightful. I really appreciate that. As you know, I'm a very curious person. So I do have some interesting questions for you. How did you get interested in mysticism in particular and queer theology? How do those things intersect for you? Because I know that you have a theology background. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. So I've been really interested in mysticism since I was really young. And I think that's partly because I grew up in and around a lot of Pentecostal circles, which can be 
toxic in a lot of ways. For anyone who grew up adjacent to Pentecostal theology, sometimes it can be oppressive to women, definitely not accepting of LGBTQ people. But there was a real emphasis in Pentecostalism on the idea that you can taste and see that the Lord is good, that the line between what is this kind of physical world and some kind of a spiritual world is maybe not as strong or harsh a line as some other mainline Christian traditions imply. And Pentecostalism, for all the baggage that it gave me, it set in motion this idea that God was maybe very close and that the experience of God or the the touching of God was not a pipe dream. And so with, with that seed kind of planted, when in college I started to discover a lot of Catholic mystics, like Thomas Merton, who was a Catholic mystic from Kentucky, who was very influenced by Zen Buddhism. Um, he corresponded with Thich Nhat Hanh while he was alive. And he wrote about Christianity, but from that sense of the sacredness of all things and the ability to touch the divine and move in this current of what was holy that was always kind of like right next to us. And for me, that felt like a maturing and deepening of these sort of Pentecostal ideas that I had from growing up, this idea that maybe the divine is closer than we think. For me, queer spirituality has been an accident because in college, I was very conservative as a Christian. And then I fell in love with a girl and like, well, fuck, I guess we can't stay conservative Christian anymore. And so it was almost like an accident. I consider it very much a spiritual gift that because of that experience, because of what my embodied self was experiencing in the world, I had to let go of some of these very conservative and very rigid Christian ideas. And in that kind of cracking of this rigidity that was forced onto me kind of by my queer awakening, it made a lot of space for a more spacious God and a more present God as well. Man, there's there's so much in there that I feel like we could unpack. I really appreciate the reference to Thomas Merton. When I first started getting interested in mysticism and like Christian spirituality in particular, Thomas Merton was one of those authors that I gravitated towards and read a few books from and then looked at some of the writings of the Desert Fathers as well, which was like almost like Zen Cohen's in the Eastern tradition. So it's really cool to see those sort of symbiotic or tangential connections between, you know, different faith communities in, in practices like asceticism and, you know, contemplative life. So I, let's actually rewind even a little bit more. So when you and I first met, we were bartenders of all things. The contemplative life in, in the middle of a loud, boisterous tavern might not seem like like an obvious sort of congruency. In fact, I think in a lot of ways, I always found myself at odds with work and trying to cultivate a more intentional lifestyle. But observing you, you always seemed like you were able to embrace that dichotomy a lot more easily. That's very generous of you. Thank you. It, it did not feel that way. It is hard to feel like you found your center in a space that is so um, in motion. But I think I am someone who has a lot of energy. Like I have just really more energy than is necessary for any one person to have. And it's like social energy and it's physical energy. And I'm always moving when I'm talking. And I'm, I love working in a bar because I have, 
I have so much social energy, but also a lot of social anxiety. And so for me, social interactions can often come with a lot of anxiety about, am I doing it right? Is this the way I should? Is this an authority figure that I should change how I'm interacting with? Is this, there's just a lot of questions, partly because I was, I was homeschooled as a kid. And so I think some of the rules about how to be human that I think are honestly, some of them are bullshit, but they're there and it can help to know what they are. So one can be aware if you're breaking them or not, but I wasn't always aware of those. And I think that has created a lot of anxiety for me. But when you're in a bar, the rules are all there. You just, I mean, speaking of rituals, you walk up to someone, Hey, how you doing tonight? Can I interest you in any of our specials? Y'all out for a special occasion this evening? Like you want to add fries to that? And it's all of the interactions are so social and so connected, but also it is a ritual. It's a call and response. It's almost a liturgy in a way. When you're working in a bar, this liturgy of hospitality. And for me, I find there is a lot of of possibility of inner peace as my body would fall into that flow of liturgy. Like on a really busy night is often where I would feel like the worst nights for me at a bar are the nights that aren't busy because you're sitting and you're restless and you're trying to figure out things to do and there's coworker drama. And But when there's a rush and there's a flow, it's almost exactly like a high church liturgy where you're standing and you're sitting and you're reciting together and you're calling and responding. And in that, you can kind of release the anxiety of creation of what do I say next? What do I do next? You know what to do. You know what to say. And I find that there can be peace in that flow and a kind of presence. That's a really insightful comment. And that's a really great way of thinking about it. You know, looking back on it, I do agree with you. I think that the times that I felt most at home in myself were when I sort of went on somewhat of an autopilot, like to your point, the ritual serves to create a state in us. And so creating that state of being present and just being in the flow state, if you will, is a magical thing. And the opposite of a flow state is like that stagnation and anxiety, like slow night at the bar, or when you sit and you can't figure out what to write and you have writer's block or creative blocks, there's that sort of like failure to move the energy around an, an opportunity or an environment that sort of forces you to move like that really does on the one hand, could be quite anxiety provoking or frustrating. But on the other hand, once you're experienced and you know the moves and you understand the dance or the call and response, as you put it, there can be a lot of freedom on the other side of that and sort of a timelessness or an eternal now, if you will, because you're the bartender, they're the customer, the kitchen is the kitchen, the drinks, the spirits, they're there. And you're just interacting in this sort of, I guess, liminal space between all these things. All this energy. It's pretty cool. That's, that is a beautiful way to phrase that. I think it is. I have struggled before to find words for what I feel is sacred about working in a bar. And it's sometimes hard for me because I almost feel embarrassed about it because anyone who's worked with me in a bar knows that I'm not always my best self when I'm at the bar. Like there's irritations and, but that sense that when it's at its best, that liminal space of being in that like fully present, almost meditation, once, like you said, once you know the moves, it is such a liminal space. There's so much sacredness that you can, that you can touch there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the, the next thing that it kind of leads me to is that when I can get out of the way, I can really experience the sort of sacredness of serving another person and like letting them be, let the experience be about someone else and sort of becoming a vessel or a participant in the story, which is cool. Not as lovely, but well, and that's the gift of hospitality, the spiritual gift of hospitality at its best is making space 
for the other person in such a way that their story has room. So I have a very clever transition for us here. Oh, I'm so excited. Empowering other people to to live their story in an authentic way is one of the things that I know you do as a writer. And so you're giving voice to people who have perhaps had shared experiences of identity and shared experiences of what it is to participate in a religious community and feel unappreciated or unwelcome or, you know, judged, et cetera. I think we can all agree that evangelical churches aren't necessarily a safe space for, for people who are not heteronormative or cisgender. If you, you know, if you don't fit in these molds that people believe to be quote unquote righteous, you know, you are, then considered a problematic entity predicated by your exact, like by your existence. And so we have a problem in, in the world of church. And so you developed a reputation for being a voice who is challenging that and is offering a different path to people for reconciliation of that identity and acceptance and opening a path to owning that spiritual relationship without having to satisfy an impossible standard definition of righteousness does not seem to me to be of Christ or to be the gospel. I think the diversity of creation, like the diversity of the world, the beauty of everything, I I don't understand why we can't also honor and make space for that in human beings. This kind of the celebration of us as we are and recognizing that so many of the ways that we perform or work harder or try harder, we don't need to do that in order to touch God, that often it's a trying less and a releasing. I think that's one of the things that Thomas Merton talks about that resonated with me when I first read him was um, the idea of the false self on top, the trying and the working and the pretending, and that deep down is under that is the true self that is really us that can touch God. Howard Thurman, who was just a tremendously underrated mystic, a contemporary of Thomas Merton, civil rights era activist and pacifist, he calls it listening to the sound of the genuine in your life. What does it mean to listen to that sound of the genuine? Um, And the evangelical church spends a lot of time telling people that listening to ourselves is a waste of time. Looking for a true self is a waste of time because what's most true about us, according to the evangelical church, is our sin nature. The most true thing about us is that we've fallen, and so we have to chip away at that through self-hatred to get to God. But the mystics would say, what we have to chip away at is everything on top and deep down in the center of us. I mean, Julian of Norwich, who was a mystic from, God, what, the 13th century? I can't do centuries. Real old, like... When was the plague, the Black Plague? Because that's when she was. So this would have, the plague was in the 1300s or the 14th century. Okay. I was, I oh, I was I over that century. So, yeah, so 13th century, 1300s, whatever. Even worse. History was not, I think, but she's never been sainted by the Catholic Church, even though she's one of the first women to write a book in the English language. But she's never been sainted because she flirted with heresy. And one of the ways she did that was she talks about how she believes in every human soul. There is something in us 
that never desired to sin and never will desire to sin. And that that's the deepest thing in us. The part that doesn't want to do wrong is deepest. And the evangelical church will have none of that. You know, we need to just constantly be repenting because our deep self is just very bad. But there's a long history of mystics who have said, no, your deep self is good and beloved. Come home to it. That is where you will meet God. That is that is very comforting. And I think that, you know, my personal journey, having sort of rejected evangelicalism and looked for answers in places like Buddhism and Hinduism, that thing that would be heretical in the evangelical world with someone like Julian of Norwich is that sort of fundamental goodness or fundamental wholeness at the core of our being. The Eastern teachings look at that as... As the outer self is, like you said, we have to chip away at. It's it's not that we're fundamentally broken. It's just that we are in a world that is full of chaos. And our experience is colored by that chaos. And so to get back to fundamental truth, to that pure essence of who we are as a child of God or a unit of pure spiritual consciousness, whatever you want to call it, it's more of an awakening process than it is a process of scrubbing away excoriation, self-flagellation, deprivation, punishment, all those things. I love that the the sense that the world is chaos. And there's a beautiful, I mean, I think Christians have maybe not, maybe misinterpreted as too harsh a word. Christians have, I think, used in an unhealthy way that theology that is so strong in the New Testament with Jesus, this idea of, of the world and how we should be separate from the world or come away from the world. Or um, Paul, who talks about how we're under the thrall of this present darkness. And often Christians can use that as like, oh, the bad culture, that we need to run away from the bad culture. But if you think of it as, like you said, this chaos and the drive to perform and succeed and have power and be skinny and be smart and all of these worldly, quote, unquote, worldly values, but that underneath that is something that can be still and beloved and that maybe that's what Christ is, when, when Christ says the kingdom of God is among you or the kingdom of God is within you, maybe that is more what Christ is calling us to, which I think resonates with the idea of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who have found their deep self apart from this chaos of the external world. Yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly what the quote is. I think it was a philosopher who said, most of the world's problems, all the world's problems stem from man's inability to sit in a room and be at peace with himself. And um, we're talking about the antidote to that in between the lines of every piece of authentic spiritual text. I was actually having a conversation with a friend the other day who is a uh, another copywriter in my sort of business, like social circle. And we were talking about exclusionary groups that would be like anchored in, say, like spirituality and business, for instance. And I asked him if he'd ever run into that. And he said, yeah, he had. And I said, well, how'd you deal with it? He, he sent me one of your articles <laughs> uh, and I was like, holy shit, Matt, I actually know this person. I know her well. Uh, we used to work together in a bar in Atlanta. And uh, so the world is a very small place talking to a guy who grew up in Latter-day Saints Church in Salt Lake living in California. And uh, your name comes up in a back and forth about faith and business. And it was just a really 
serendipitous moment because it was actually after I'd reached out to you to to do the podcast. And I was like, so Laura's actually, Laura Jean's actually going to be on the podcast. And we just had a little chuckle about it. That is, that makes me so happy. What an odd, do you remember what article it was? You don't have to. You know, I could probably pull it up in my email and we'll definitely link to it. We'll link to it in the show notes on the, on the recording today. And I'll get back to you on that. But it was about sort of I read it and I've read it before. I think it's one that I'd actually read from you before. It wasn't one that you'd written like super, super recently. But speaking of your writing, you have started a Patreon community. And how's that going? I know a lot of people have looked at Patreon as kind of like a a way to support the work. And a lot of people, artists included, we've been affected by this pandemic. And so how, when did you start the Patreon and how has it changed the way that you connect with your readership? A couple, I guess three years ago now, somebody, when I had like three people, including my mom, reading my blog and 25 followers on Twitter, somebody tweeted at me, I'd like to support your work. Do you have a Patreon? And I did not have a Patreon. But if somebody asks you, can I give you money? Like the answer is, hang on, let me figure out how you can get. Yes, I am about to have a Patreon. Give me four seconds. Um, until this year, I didn't really use it because I've really struggled with the intersections of, of creativity and self-promotion. Because I think the way that our culture emphasizes self-promotion often can actually stifle creativity. I think in any area, not just spiritual creativity, but often I think we can see it maybe sometimes more clearly with creativity around spirituality. And so it's been hard for me to figure out how to make careful space for creativity and lean into promotion in a way that feels healthy, that doesn't slice into that creative space. And that's always just been really hard for me. And I, I haven't always done it well. I don't always know how to do it. But this year, I started with my Patreon. Instead of having... So so for folks who don't know, you know, Patreon is a, a system to support artists and creators, mostly based on a tiered membership that depending on how much people support you, they can have different benefits or different access to different promotions. And especially if you're like a multimedia artist or a filmmaker, you're trying to raise money for a serious project. It's a really, really great system. If you're someone like me, who's mostly just a writer, it can be awkward to figure out how to do that. Um, So this year I stopped having tears. And basically what I do is if you support me at all on Patreon, I write an essay once a month that's just for my Patreon people and everyone kind of accesses that. And I started doing that because I felt bad that I had these people supporting me on Patreon who like weren't getting their money's worth or something. I was like, oh, people need to get their money's worth. I need to do something for the people so that they don't feel like they're wasting their money on me. But what it's turned into, um, I don't know, have you do listen to um, Brene Brown's podcast at all? So I'm familiar with Brene, but I don't think I've ever listened to her podcast. I've seen some of her, um, I don't want to say stand-up because it's not stand-up, it's like TED Talks yeah. or, or like specials on Netflix. Uh, her podcast is just, I want every creative to just listen to it constantly. It's so good. But she had a recently Dr. Sarah Lewis on talking about the difference between success and mastery, especially in creativity and those, the difference between chasing success and chasing mastery. And it was just the most beautiful conversation. But the part of it that resonated with me most was a story about Nobel Peace Prize winners. I'm cutting the story very short. It's much longer, but essentially they started meeting on Friday nights just to play and to just experiment and to just say, let's just do some weird science shit and see what happens. And 
in that kind of free play of what's the most ridiculous idea? Nobody is watching. Nobody is here. This isn't about getting more or pursuing big things. It's just about a place that's safe to play. And out of that, the amount of actual successful scientific ideas was like very high. And so for me, my Patreon is a place where I can feel more safe to play because I know those people and they know me and it's more of a community with comments and feedback and I can say shit that isn't fully formed because I don't have to worry that it's going to go viral on, I guess someone could copy paste it if I said something really dumb. But like in general, it's a safe place for me to be like, here's some thoughts about sex and maybe I'll change my mind later. And I'm not citing any important books. It's just creativity. And I just love it. I feel honored that people have helped make this space where I can be more free without performance. And that's a very long answer to your question. Um, but it's for me, it's just been a really exciting process of learning to lean into creative spaces without worrying if I'm showing up perfectly. Yeah, I think that that's, again, that's, that's so on point for me. I think a lot of the times when, you know, in work, it's, it, it has been about success or delivering results for clients. But as a human being who is also creative and who makes things for, you know, himself and for, you know, the sake of doing things outside of commerce, there's a different relationship to creating art versus creating a creative work product. And so I can really appreciate how you're using that Patreon for the purpose of furthering the ideas and furthering your own creativity. I could see myself putting things into a, a place like that in the world as opposed to just creating things and selling them. Not that that's a that there's anything wrong with selling creative things. I mean, obviously it's how I make my living, but it's not the only thing. So I found the article for people who are listening. The article is called Hell No, Why Grace is Coming for Us All. So I will link to that in the show notes. It's a great read and it has a lot of really impactful stuff. So what is on the horizon for you? Most of my spirituality this year has really been informed more so than I think any other time by the mystics that the Christian and Buddhist mystics. Um, I don't know if you would say Buddhist mystic. I actually don't know if that's if that's appropriate, but reading a lot. You mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. Would you say he's a, a, a Buddhist mystic? Is mysticism appropriate for Buddhism? I, I don't know. I'm I'm on the outside looking and it's not, it's not my tradition. I think the most common turn of phrase is Buddhist teacher. Mm -hmm. I think that the teachings by nature are pretty mystical just in, in the terms of theology and the way we think about things. But I don't know that there's anything problematic about calling them mystical. I'm not sure if, if mystical has an implication of experiencing the divine or not, but I'll actually, I'll look that up later. That'll be a fun Wikipedia rabbit hole for me. Um, you have to let me know, I have to follow up because I want to make sure that I'm on the, the right side of history with this one. There's so many ways to be on the wrong side of history. I feel like I'm just trying really hard. Like we're going to, we're going to get it right eventually. Yeah. I, if I have to, I'll redact. I don't want to mansplain anything away, especially if I don't know for sure. Being curious, learning to repent is my 2020 practice. Um, but so, so a lot of what I've been reading has been about the practice of coming back to what is and realizing how much of my life I have spent very much focused on what will be as if, as if in that moment there will be completion. Like the wholeness I seek is always tomorrow. 
the sense of having arrived vocationally will come when I can say this or when I can do that or when. And so a lot of what I've been trying to do this year, mostly failing at, but I guess the trying is also the succeeding in some way. There's some Zen for you, but learning that like the vocation is here and the work is here in this moment, in this present. And so I, I do think vocationally writing is where my joy is. One of my favorite writers, Sarah Bessie, talks about your finding your vocation, like where your joy and your anger meet. And I like that idea of the joy of the work of writing, but also like anger at the established church or the institutional church and teasing those apart. And so I do want to continue writing. However, it, it continues to present itself to me. And right now, a lot of what that means is a lot of meditations on Instagram, which is a surprisingly helpful practice because Instagram has that stupid fucking word count. Like it's so small, two, 2,200 characters in an Instagram post. Like the amount of times that I'll start writing a post and then I'll like weave my way to, to what I'm like, oh, this is it. This is the point. This is what I want to say. And right as I hit it, Instagram throws up that little red character limit reached. Then I have to go back and like delete everything I've set up to that point and start over. But the practice of finding the one thing that's important and then not having any extra words around it. I think as this podcast has demonstrated, I can be a little wordy, partly because I think out loud. And a lot of the times as I'm talking, I'll discover, you know, my verbal processor, I discover what it is I'm saying midway through. And then I'll be like, oh, this is it. This is a thing. And the same with my writing. But when I'm, I'm writing long form, like blog essays, I don't have to be as disciplined. I can halfway through the essay be like, oh, I've discovered what I want to say. I guess I'll just keep saying it. And 8,000 words later, I've got this like blog post that's, you know, a decade long. But Instagram forces me to come to the point of what it is that matters and what's important. And I think that discipline has been good for my writing. And also because Instagram can be a space that can feel very, um, in some ways, very strong and community-based and full of connection and good people doing good things. But if you're not careful, you can weave into the very promotional aspect of Instagram of people branding themselves and promoting themselves and lots of selfies and, and lots of aggressive yeah, I think branding in the worst sense and not in the best sense. And to carve out a bit of that space that feels a little more meditative, I think has been a good practice for me. And realizing in the best sense of branding, that is a way of branding, you know? And I think that's a lot of what you do in your work is, you know, helping people find that, that true thing that you want to say. Yeah. And, and so I found Instagram to be a, a good place to do that work. Yeah, hundred percent. I have two Instagrams. I have one for personal and one for work because to your point, who I am as a person and, and who I am at work are the same person, but they're speaking on social media for different reasons. And so I definitely am much more focused on, on the work, you know, in my work account, but I, I try not to be a salesman as a human being, just relating to the world around me, but the internet's a weird place, you know? So more power to you for finding things that are actually good about it. I think it's a lot easier to pick it apart and talk about what's bad. I think Instagram's a great platform though. I think in the, just it's more visual. There's there's more opportunity to be authentic, I think, than with Facebook. Facebook is kind of a soapboxy postured space and it's just so crowded. It feels like being on a, a train mm. that's uh, overpacked. No, I'm sort of stuck at five point station. Big mood. Well, I think for anyone who's doing any serious creative work online, 
who hasn't seen the Mr. Rogers documentary, I can't recommend that enough because he hated television. And it talks about how much he hated television, but he hated it so much that he wanted to do something sacred with it. And there's a line in that documentary where I think one of his children says that he saw the space in between the screen and the person receiving from the screen as holy. I'm pretty sure that's one of the lines that had me in tears when I watched that documentary. I mean, like I might tear up a little bit right now because it was just really, really powerful. I hadn't even thought about this in such a long time, but man, what a, what a, a deep way to engage, mm. and, you know, from a place of purpose, from a sense of anchoring and something good. So if you haven't seen the Mr. Rogers documentary, go grab a box of tissues and fire up Netflix. Cause it's, it's worth every moment and it, it will punch you right in the feels. <laughs> I honestly, the, the, I think I must've been maybe 12 seconds in before. And I didn't, ex- I didn't go in expecting, you know, I just was like, Oh, Mr. Rogers, that's pleasant. He's a big part of my childhood. And then I think the opening quote, I was just weeping. It's what a, what an earnest and compassionate and thoughtful human. Um, yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. We're about out of time, Laura. This has been such a great conversation. I want to thank you for being here today and sharing all of this really great stuff with our listeners. So before we dip out of here, where can people find you? Yeah, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me. This has felt like sacred space as well, a liminal space. So I really appreciate I appreciate you and your hospitality to make this space. So thank you. I am on Instagram and on Twitter at Laura Jean Truman is my user is my handle for both of those on Facebook as well. Laura Jean Truman writer. And my uh, website is also Laura Jean Truman. So I keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) So I should be pretty easy to find. Brand consistency is something we should all strive for. (laughs) And we have a perfect example of that here. All right, Laura. Well, thank you again. This has been great. We'll have all these delightful things for everyone in the show notes. Go read her article and go follow her on social media and see what she's up to. Thanks for listening to Ritual. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone that you think would love it. Special thanks to our producer, Emily Milling, and her team at The Ultimate Creative, and our amazing business manager, Erica McCauley. I recorded the intro music for this podcast with Spencer Garn at Diamond Street Studios here in Atlanta. Until next time, I'm Daniel Lamb. And just remember, everything that you need to be creative is right here with you, within you, in this moment. Mm-hmm.